This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, it's Ben Mathis here with just a quick favor to ask. We love having great advertisers support the show, but in order to continue doing that, we need your help. So please go to podsurvey.com kick and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how enthusiastic our audience is about kick-ass news and keep the show free for listeners like you. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, and it's really important that we have lots of listener feedback, so I'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to fill out this new one. Plus, as a thank you, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash kick. Thanks for your help, and thanks for listening. Today's podcast is sponsored by Nadex. Do you want to try day trading the markets but worried about the risk? What if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front? Well, you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See for yourself why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at Nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In March of 2016, the tennis world was rocked when Maria Sharapova revealed that she had failed a drug test at the Australian Open that January. Testing positive for meldonium, which had been added to the World Anti-Doping Agency's banned substances list just three weeks prior. The Court of Arbitration for Sports later found that she had taken the substance, quote, based on a doctor's recommendation with good-faith belief that it was appropriate and compliant with the relevant rules. But nonetheless, she was slapped with a 15-month suspension by the International Tennis Federation, a lifetime in the world of professional sports. Sharapova recently returned to professional tennis this April, and in a dramatic comeback, she beat number 2 seed Simona Halep in the first round at last month's U.S. Open. Sharapova says it's part of the kind of gritty determination and ability to rise above adversity that's gotten her where she is today. And she writes about it in her new book, Unstoppable, My Life So Far. Born in Russia, Maria Sharapova moved to the United States when she was just six years old and rose quickly as a tennis prodigy, coming seemingly out of nowhere to beat Serena Williams and win the Wimbledon finals by age 17. She reached the number one ranking at age 18 and has held that ranking on five separate occasions in her career. She's won 35 singles titles and five Grand Slam titles, including that Wimbledon victory over Serena in 2004, as well as titles at the Australian Open and the U.S. Open and two French Opens. Maria Sharapova also won a silver medal in women's singles at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. Today, Maria Sharapova joins me on the podcast to share the remarkable story of how her father brought the six-year-old Maria to Florida with just 700 bucks in his pocket and an unwavering faith in his daughter's dream of becoming a tennis champion. She opens up about some of the setbacks she experienced during those early years, including a difficult growth spurt and a shady tennis pro who tried to take advantage of her and her father. 
She tells the story of the first time she watched the Williams sisters practice as a kid and a locker room moment that she says has defined the rivalry between her and Serena Williams ever since. She reveals what went through her mind when she learned that she had failed that 2016 drug test, what she did during her 15-month suspension, and how the experience changed her mind about retiring from tennis. Plus, she talks about her dramatic comeback at last month's U.S. Open, her notorious grunt, and why she wouldn't even be playing tennis if it weren't for the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. Coming up with Maria Sharapova in just a moment. Tennis player Maria Sharapova has held the title of number one in the world five times so far. She's won 35 singles titles and five Grand Slam titles, including two French Opens, one Australian Open, a Wimbledon, and a U.S. Open. She's written a new book called Unstoppable, My Life So Far. Maria, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, there was a little girl outside who was waiting for you just now named Michelle, and she told me to tell you that you're her hero. <laughs> oh, that is so sweet. Um, yeah, as I come to do these these book signings, and this as this is my first tour, it's my book, my first book press tour, which mm-hmm. is a, an interesting experience. Hours of talking and and things, but the best part of it is actually doing these signings and getting to share these small, intimate moments with um, you know with little girls and boys that look up to you and and are able to read your journey in the book. Yeah, and I was tempted to tell her that if she wants to become a professional tennis player, she should relocate to close to some nuclear plant or something, or <laughs> Three Mile Island or something, because you say that you wouldn't even be a tennis player if it weren't for the Chernobyl disaster. That's right. Uh, how does that work? Explain how those two exactly. events are connected for you. Well, for one, my mom was pregnant with me living 30 kilometers away from the from that explosion uh, back in 1986. And... Um, because there's not a lot of information around what happened and the consequences, um, her and my father fled and they moved to Siberia where I was born. And um, so because of that, probably would have been, maybe I would have been born in Belarus if not for Chernobyl, and which is a you know quite a, a poor country. I don't think I would have played tennis there. Um, and then when I was two years old, we moved to the south and a resort town called Sochi, Sochi yeah. yeah, which um, had a, yeah, we had a lot of visitors in the summer. Tennis was a little bit more popular. My dad played for fun. He, you know, tried to be an athlete, but was not very good. He played hockey, a little <laughs> bit of tennis in the summers, um, but no real athletic background in my family. But for fate, your dad moved you to the pretty much probably the one place in Russia where you can actually play tennis. That's huh? right. Where anyone really plays tennis. Because tennis is not that big in Russia, no, is it? not particularly. And especially back then. I mean, now it's grown so much. And we've really put um, a lot of athletes, including myself, has, has put tennis on the map in Russia. But back then, um, it was hockey. It was all the winter sports. It was gymnastics. It was rhythmic gymnastics. Those sports really dominated kind of the excitement from a fan perspective. There are a lot of coaches in those fields as opposed to tennis. And that's why we moved to the United States when I was just six and a half years old. And you dedicate a lot of this book to your dad, Yuri. 
uh, he was told, I guess, early on that if you wanted to go pro, he had to get you out of Russia. So he decides suddenly to take you to the Nick Boletary Academy right. in Florida. And somehow, by some miracle, he gets a visa, which was not very easy to do back then, no. I think. No. he. Um, so when I was five, I was spotted by Martina Navratilova, who was doing a kids' clinic in Moscow. And um, she singled me out out of many other kids that were participating. And she came to my father and said... I think your girl is talented. And, you know, looking back at that at five years old, I can't imagine what she saw because I only began playing tennis just a year previously. So um, for her to be able to see that and spot that was really incredible. And as she told my father that I was talented, there's not many opportunities in Russia. Why don't you try going to the United States? Like my dad just all of a sudden, it was like a light went off and he's like, I'm going to do that. So getting a visa back then was not easy at all. He um, got an appointment at the consulate, at the U.S. consulate, and showed up there, and he wore his suit that he um, got married in. Um, it was the only one he had, and he convinced the officer to to give him a um, an unlimited visa with his daughter, and that's how he ended up on a flight with me to America. Yeah, and you talk about the first day that you landed in Florida and how he had these plans, and someone was supposed to meet you and take yeah. you to the academy, and no one showed up and you right. were depending on the kindness of strangers. It right. sounds like that first day was kind of an adventure for both of you. Really, really much so. And, um, you know, when you're young, you always hear your parents and others say, you know, stay away from strangers, you know, <laughs> don't get too close to them. But yeah. as I look back at those moments in first few days in America, it's really the strangers that helped us and really paved the way for us. We didn't speak the language. We didn't have much money. Someone was supposed to pick us up at the airport in the middle of the night in Miami, they weren't there. And without many resources, someone from uh, this couple from the plane, um, you know, let us stay at their place that evening and then drove us to an academy. So without their help, and these are just people that we met for a few days, a few hours um, that guided us in these directions from which we were able to be here. And at some point, I guess uh, your dad, even though you had just landed in America, he kept you on your tennis practice schedule <laughs> every day. And didn't he find a hotel or something yeah. that, that would let you practice on their courts? Well, my dad would walk around and I, I believe it was Collins Avenue and they were just there were. There weren't public courts there at all. They were either part of a hotel or part of a residential place. And he just thought, like, in Russia, you could just go to a court and play there. And, yeah, it's and the people's courts. <laughs> it's the yeah. people's courts. And he's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Like, you have to belong to that community to practice there. And he's like, no, 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 we're, we're fine. We'll just walk through the bushes and no one will notice us. And so my dad thought he could just take me to any court and practice, which, which looking back is very much something he would do. Now, when you finally got to the Bolt, was it which which academy was was the well, Boletary or the Nick? The, sorry, the Nick Macy Academy. Yeah. Right? So at first yeah. we um at the first Macy we academy. went to Rick Macy's Academy. Rick Macy, right? And interesting. And of course, I, I look back at it now, and I think, I mean, who would believe our story? Like we, you know, we would show up at the door, and my father would say, um, "Hello, my name's Yuri, and I have a daughter that is going to be a great tennis player. Can you please take her in on a scholarship because I don't have money and." And my wife is left behind in Russia. And like that's a story that no one will believe. And yeah. as I look back at it, and part of the reason I wrote the book is because that it, it really sometimes is almost like a miracle that um, that was able to happen. But everyone gave us strange looks. And my father didn't appreciate that. <laughs> he didn't like that. And he didn't like that academy. And then he we ended up taking a, gr um, a Greyhound bus 
to Bradenton, Florida, where the famous Nick Volatari Academy was. Um, my dad read about it in the papers. He read about it. Um, he saw that the Williams sisters, Andre Agassi, practiced there, so many of the greats, and he thought that I would have a chance there. And we knocked at the door, and they said, you can come back the next day because it was the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> and we did, and little by little, we got to know the, the coaches there, got to know Nick, um, and they were... I was in and out of that academy for a little bit because I was too young to board at some point, and... Um, mm and they wouldn't give me a scholarship because I was too young. Kids were much older than I was, and I ended up going to another place next door that wasn't as good, but then I was... Yeah, yeah. that was wild. At a certain point, for no particular reason, you got kicked out of Volatary yeah. and you lost your scholarship. Your dad suspected that it had something to do with Anna Kornikova's yeah. mom, is that yeah. right? Yeah, because no one really believed um, what we were there for. Everyone questioned where my mom was. It was like, as if my dad just took me to America and my mom was nowhere to be found. And yeah, there was, there was not much stability in our life, as you can imagine. And financially, we were not supported by anyone. So all those question marks um, just didn't lead anyone to really give us much of a chance. So we were always scrambling for training, for money, for jobs for my father. It sounds like it must have been a very stressful time for your dad because after you got kicked out of there, you ended up, like you said, at a not so great place yeah. just down the street. Yeah. And you were training at this second rate tennis academy run by this guy who frankly sounds like a real scumbag. <laughs> Didn't he basically have your dad working for him as an indentured servant? And he, he he took his passport and his papers yeah. and kept them in a safe. It just felt like a low Shady. grade place. Like it just yeah, felt like sounds worse than that. <laughs> it just felt like one of those places that you wouldn't really come out of it being great. You mm -hmm. wouldn't come out of it being something special. But it was a place that allowed me to train and that allowed my father to work and be close to me. He didn't have to be hours away so he could monitor what I was doing and he would be there when I was training. So there were, you know, as I speak about in the book, like there were good things in that situation, but it always felt like second tier to the Voluntary Academy. So although it gave me confidence that I was better than the other players, I knew that I had to work up to the players that were at the other academy next door. And so... Although it was nice, it wasn't challenging enough um, mm. in terms for my tennis, but it was challenging in all other aspects. Well, did your dad ever get his passport back? He definitely got <laughs> okay. his passport back. <laughs> okay, good. Well, when you went back to Boletaries, you started training there and got on scholarship and things were looking up and then you experienced this growth spurt. And it's funny because throughout the whole book, how everyone was talking about this little tiny Russian yeah. girl tennis player yeah. and suddenly you're not such a tiny girl. How did yeah. you adjust to your new yeah. body? Yeah, I was, when I was young, I was very skinny. I wasn't tall, um, knobbly knees, mm. very awkward. You know, I didn't have the nicest clothes. Um, you know, I had my hair, my father would cut for the first few years unevenly, which I didn't appreciate <laughs> at all. Um, but then all of a sudden I started growing and I, I don't necessarily know why I became so tall. I'm 6'2 now, but no one in my family is very tall. But there was this huh. sense. <laughs> well, that, I, I questioned that in the book because yeah. the mushrooms were growing three times the size. The, the film was coming back exposed. So you never, you never know. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a good laugh about it with my parents. But on a serious note, I did. I, I found myself growing um, out of nowhere, really. And 
I remember hanging off of a, um, you know, my, my parents would put up a rod in my bedroom door, just hanging it on the door, and they would have me hang from it before I went to sleep. They believed that I would grow taller when I would be sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did that. So I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but it was a change, and it, it kept going for a few years. I lost a lot of matches during that time. I just couldn't really connect my mind to my body, which was so strange. Like, I felt all right. I would walk normal, sleep normal, eat normal. But then I'd get on the court, and I'd, I'd just feel so disconnected from everything that was going on. And it made me feel, for someone that was growing bigger and taller, it made me feel smaller, mm -hmm. um, which was a ch challenging time. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with tennis player Maria Sharapova when we come back in just a moment. Warning, if you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking you have to pay it all back, because you don't. What the credit card companies don't want you to know is that there's actually a way to get debt-free without paying off your entire debt or going bankrupt. If you have $5,000 or more in credit card debt, you now have the right to let credit associates settle that debt for a fraction of what you owe. For free information, call 1-800-500-0351. They'll even show you how much money you could save. If you can't afford to pay off all your debt, don't let the credit card companies trick you into thinking you have to. Call Credit Associates now for free information on how to get debt-free faster than you thought possible without debt consolidation or bankruptcy. Credit Associates depends on your success and offers a guarantee, so there's no risk. For free information, call 1-800-500-0351. That's 1-800-500-0351. And now, back to the podcast. You've had this long-standing rivalry with Serena Williams. Yeah. The Williams sisters were already pretty well-known in tennis when yeah. you were a kid training at Nick Boletary's. Yeah. And at some point, the Williams sisters come to Boletary's to practice. And it sounds like for everyone else, it was like Elvis arriving, but you didn't want to watch them practice. Why not? Yes, I remember the day when they when the coaches told us that the Williams sisters were coming to practice with their father. And half of the practice on that day was canceled because all the kids wanted to watch them practice. And, and I deep down wanted to watch them practice too. And my father was like, you have to go and, you know, study their focus, study their game, study what they're doing. They're grand slam champions. And I wanted to, but I didn't want them to see me. So I found there's a shed behind the court they were practicing on. And I asked, there's all this equipment there, video stuff, and I asked my dad to pull all of that aside so I could watch them through this little hole in a shed, watch them practice, and like pretty much watch the next 25 years of my life <laughs> yeah. in front of me. Um, and it was amazing. I, I, I was so, I mean, I loved how focused they were, and they had, I was, it was the first time where I saw someone practicing in front of a crowd. Mm -hmm. Like there was just, it was a herd of kids watching them, like, eyes completely on their on the subject and and I loved how they you know they handled themselves like it didn't matter who was watching like they were there mm -hmm. on a mission and and just a few years later I would find myself facing Serena at the Wimbledon final um yeah so like our our you know so-called relationship began <laughs> from this little video shed as I was watching them practice and then just a few years after 
I honestly, I felt like I was transported onto a TV screen and <laughs> facing against her in the finals at Wimbledon at one of the biggest stages of my career. And, yeah. and so much of that was like this feeling of, do I even belong here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that was your first big moment when you won the Wimbledon finals in 2004. You've talked about having struggled to beat her since then. Mm-hmm. You blame something that happened in the locker room after the match, not the match itself. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I noticed as the match went on itself was this kind of understanding for the first time in my career that I was an underdog and I didn't know really what that meant but that I had nothing to lose. And here she was, a two-time defending champion. Actually, you know, everyone around her like expected her to win. Mm-hmm. And I found that funny because I'm the one that still has things to prove, and she's already <laughs> been there, done that, and she's the one that's, for some reason, in a position where she can't. She feels like she can't lose it. And, and I really noticed it toward the end of the match because a player like her has always... And always lifts her game when you're in a situation like that when she's behind. Mm-hmm. But I, I just noticed that it wasn't going to be that day for her. Um, there was a sense of, um, like I for some reason I, I saw it in her eyes, um, and I was able to elevate my game. And so that combination, I mean, really helped me be victorious on that day. And then there's always the you know the moment that you talk about is that intimate moment in the locker room where. At the end of toward the end of a tournament, when an individual sport you're sharing a locker room, like you're pretty much connected to the hip with where you are right as you walk onto the court, and when you walk off the court, and um, it's like just you and your opponent, and in the midst of thousands of people that are outside, it's like you against the world in a way, and you share all these personal moments. And I come in there and I, I hear her crying. I, I know I, I know that she sees me because I'm putting my bags down and I have people around me and they're asking me if I'm going to my press conference. So it was that moment in which I really thought that, you know, I really stepped up my game. I was the 17-year-old girl and I was able to come through and win. And in her mind, she was like, I'm never losing to her again. Yeah. Um, and I've been in that losing end of a Grand Slam since that victory. I know how that feels like. I know when an opponent comes in after that victory, and it's a low moment. Yeah, you say that you're more driven by the fear of losing than the love of winning. Uh, do you think that's a more effective motivator? I I don't know. It's always worked for me. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think it's a healthy motivator? <laughs> Maybe I should I ask think, that. Um, I think I don't. I don't like the feeling of losing, so I mm-hmm. think you do when you, you train. No, exactly. <laughs> and and being a competitor, like no one wants to be on the winning end, especially a Grand Slam final. Mm-hmm. Well, you're also known for your concentration. I, I wonder, when you're on the court like that and you miss a point, yeah. what do you do mentally to reset so that it doesn't affect the rest of your game? I, you know, I, I have a routine in between points. Like, I go back and... I fiddle with my strings for a little bit. And, and the reason I started doing that at a young age was because my concentration was like I was I had a drive where I was good with repetition and doing the same thing over and over. But when I would be up in a match, I'd lose my concentration. I'd look around. I'd see people watching me. I'd be like, how amazing is this? And then all of a sudden you're kind of taken back to reality. You lose a few points, leads to games. And then, wow, you're losing you're losing a match. Mm-hmm. And so I learned very quickly that. You know, tennis is a momentum game. There are shifts, there are turns, but working on the concentration is very important. And, and I think everyone must find 
what is it that draws them back to like being present? Because mm-hmm. I find when I lose my concentration, my mind is like, is not in, in the moment that I am in today or right now. I'm somewhere else, Yeah, you know, in the future, usually. Having spent your life dedicated to the sport and being so focused mm-hmm. singularly on this, is it weird to you to think that there are millions of people out there in the world that actually play tennis for fun? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. And I, I understand that aspect. And I actually, I do, like, I'll go out with some of my friends that, you know, just play tennis for fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll hit the ball back and really? forth with them. You yeah. play for fun. Well, I mean, like, when I say fun, like, it's not that fun for me because it's not, I, well, it's I like not to be challenged. To you, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, it's not a challenge. And that's what <laughs> makes the game fun to me. Like, I like being in a situation where it's deep in the third set. Of course, victories that are fast and, you know, so. I shall say, like, on the easy end, I mean, those are great. They're fast. Your your body gets another chance to recover quicker for the next one. But I do love the pressure, and I do love being in situations that challenge me. So fun, you know, hitting the ball back and forth, That's it's fun because I'm there sharing it with my friends. But it's not fun because I'm not challenging myself within that sport. Well, one thing that wasn't fun was in 2016, of course, when you found out that you had tested positive for a banned substance. Right. Uh, you were actually notified in an email, of all things. Uh, what went through your mind when you read that? Um, it was um, it was such a surprise because the knowledge, um, when I found out what the name was, um, my knowledge of the previous years that I was taking that that supplement was actually that it was legal and I had certifications that it was legal. Right. So the shock of not knowing that it had become illegal was, I think, the initial um, sort of surprise and uncertainty that I had was, wait, wait, how did I not know? How did I not find out mm-hmm. um, who, you know, who was responsible for it? And then at the end of the day, um, you know, I took full responsibility for it because that is my body and my and my choice. And I was the one that was supposed to check that. Yeah, and even, I guess, either the International Tennis Association or the WADA or whoever it was said that it was clear that you hadn't been taking it as a performance-enhancing drug right. and you hadn't been taking it intentionally. Right, um, yeah. Yeah, I went through I went through two trials. Um, you know, in the final report, I, you know, I, I felt like my, my uh, suspension was reduced to 15 months. I mm. was... Um, it was found that it was not intentional, that I was not notified properly by the ITF of the change, um, that I was not hiding my use um, of that supplement. So, yeah, I mean, it, it but it took a long time to, to get to that. Yeah. And I was still away from the game for that period of time. So I faced a lot um, of different emotions. I faced the, the challenge of, wow, well, the realization of, wow, will I ever be back again? Will I ever be back at the top level? When will I be back? So, and for an athlete, uncertainty is scary. And I definitely yeah. face that feeling. And 15 months is a lifetime. In a tennis world, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, during those 15 months, aside from writing the book, uh, what did you do with your time? I did a lot. I still maintained a good base, like physically, which mm-hmm. was really important. I trained a lot, um, not as much on the court, but I did a lot of off-court activities. Um, I gained a whole new appreciation sort of around the fact that the body at 30 years old can still do great things, can still have the drive and the capability if you treat it right, um, that it will have the opportunity to train at a high level and play a lot of tournaments. 
which was a good sign for me mentally that I could continue. I also got a chance to study a little bit. I took a couple of business courses um, in Boston at HBS. Um, I did a few internships. I went to the NBA. I shadowed Adam Silver <laughs> really? for a few days. Um, I went to Nike offices. I was at an advertisement agency in London. So <laughs> it was an interesting, okay. um, yeah, I felt like I, I made most of that time. Obviously, you have a team around you. Yeah. Who should have been responsible for catching this? I, I'm sure that there's someone who should have known when they changed yeah. the rules to alert you to that and yeah. get you off of this. I think I could probably um, speak about a lot of people. You mm -hmm. know, there's, although I don't have, um, you know, I, I have a fairly small team. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say I have a large, as they say, entourage. Yeah. I have a small <laughs> team of people that overlooks everything. Um, but we were definitely complacent with the fact that something was completely legal for a long time. Um and became illegal and it just was not checked but ultimately it is my responsibility and i think mm -hmm. that was um something that i acknowledged from the beginning and and it it also you know i thought to myself why would i want to look at this and say that this is someone's fault like that that's not going to change the situation mm -hmm. i have to move forward i have i'm going to be out of the game for this amount of time i have to make make use of it and when i come back um that's when i will come back yeah, and you had a lot of your tennis colleagues and, you know, the social justice warriors out there who yeah. were very quick to condemn yeah. you over this. Yeah. You know, when you have Which is someone understandable. like Yeah, but you know, also it seems like it's symptomatic of how quick we are to jump to conclusions these days in this kooky social media world. Right. You know, when you have someone like Eugenie Bouchard saying you should be banned from ever playing because of yeah. this, do you, do you ever just want to say, well, well you should be banned from playing tennis because you can't play tennis? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you just said that. Okay. <laughs> I like to think that I said what you wouldn't. But <laughs> That was an interesting choice. Um, I appreciate it. Okay, <laughs> we can move on. Then. No, I think. Look, I the reason why I don't, I don't have that mentality and those responses is because those judgments and those opinions are not based on facts. Right. Like I went through trial procedures with all information up front, um, in front of a panel of people. Um, after going through everything, um, their report stated unintentional. Um, and all those things. So I think when people are making opinions without knowledge or facts, um, that's when it's really tough for me to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. and, and when this happened, it was right around the same time as the Russian Olympic doping scandal, which was a vast deliberate doping conspiracy. Right. Do you think that in some people's minds you were painted with the same brush and lumped in with that scandal just because you were from Russia and you had a Russian last name? It didn't feel like it just no. because I wasn't um, I wasn't ever really part of, of the Federation. I didn't train mm -hmm. there. Um, I never got funded by the Federation. I mean, I trained from the age of six um, mm -hmm. in the United States and I have been um, all my coaches um, have been from all over the world. So I never really felt like I was connected to that. And before the drug issue came up, you were already looking at probably retiring I in the was. next few years but yeah. now you say that you want to keep playing as long as you can I do. did those 15 months of a suspension uh make you realize how much you missed tennis or was it about wanting to write the final chapter in yeah. your career on your own terms why did you return think, well even before the suspension when i started writing this book i i actually just didn't really believe that i'd have the drive to continue after thir after 30 or after the rio olympics mm -hmm. um and also from like a body perspective i think i just 
as I said, really understood and, and appreciated what I could still do at this age. Um, and the final aspect is that, yes, of course, as someone that's always been in control of their career, you know, when you have, when things are in your hands, like you, the wins and losses are in your hands, you want to determine the way that you go out, especially when you start something from a young age. And so I knew that no matter how long I would be out of the game, that I would be back and, um, and I would finish it the way that I would like to. Well, just a few weeks ago, you had a special moment at the U.S. Open for someone who's known for her stoicism on the court. It it probably took a lot of people by surprise to see you break down in tears after your win over Simona at the U.S. Open. Uh, Why was that so emotional for you? What was going on in your head? Yeah, it still gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, (laughs) There were a lot of things. I hadn't played at the Open for a few years because of of the suspension and also because of injuries previously. So it just had been, I believe, like three years. And um, I don't know, just coming back to Arthur Ashe Stadium where I've been, where I've had amazing success being the champion there in 06, but also having like tough losses. So everything just comes back to you. And and being on that stage of a Grand Slam, there's a lot more emotion that goes onto the mind. You know, there's a lot more Mm -hmm. on the line. You know, the whole world is watching. And that's the moment that like I play for, like, I want to play in that moment. And, and I, that's exactly what I got in my first round. I played against the number two player in the world as a wild card. And I, um, I was able to deliver and, and compete at a high level. And so it, I felt like a lot of things came together for me that night. I didn't continue playing with the same level in that tournament as I did in the first match, but the fact that I was able to really step up when I had to um, without coming into the tournament, I, I hadn't played a lot of matches, only played one match, I believe, in like three months. Um, she was close to getting to number one in the world. So just looking back at that and, and seeing that I pulled through and the feeling that I had after, um, you know, looking at my, my team who's been with me in the last few years and has been through everything, you know, it just felt like a... a it was obviously an emotional victory, but I felt like we did it as a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before we go, I have to ask you about the grunting issue. Yeah. People <laughs> beat you over the head about that. And it strikes me that, you know, no one ever says a word of when guys grunt on the court. It's just what guys do. Do you feel that there's a, <laughs> it's a little bit sexist how we make such a big deal out of women tennis players who, think... who make a peep when they're, you know, in a know. competitive sport? I don't know. I've been hearing the grunting story for a long time. Yeah. And and I think it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just another headline or another story or it, it just, it doesn't really, it's not a big deal to me because I've done it yeah. from a young age. And like if someone, you know, if someone told me you had to stop, I mean, if I paid attention to it, I'm sure I would. I'd, I'd have to focus extremely hard <laughs> because I've done this since I was a young girl and it yeah. just comes automatically. But I don't think twice about it. You know, yeah. I'm asked about it in a few press conferences, particularly in England. And they make a big deal out of it. They compare it to the sound of an airplane. I have a good <laughs> laugh about that, you know, as anyone yeah. should. I mean, I, that's not, if you think about it, that's not real journalism. So Yeah, but men don't play tennis on mute. I no, mean, no one, but no one ever says anything no, about that. No, everyone makes different noise. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> well, again. But the... I definitely get picked on about that. I and, know and, you do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, the book is called Unstoppable, My Life So Far. Maria Sharapova, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Thanks again to Maria Sharapova for joining me on the podcast. You can get her book, Unstoppable, My Life So Far, on Amazon or in bookstores. Or download the audio version at audible.com or on iTunes. 
Visit her website at mariasharapova.com or follow her on Twitter at at Maria Sharapova. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.